0: Who's okay.
1: our God, to you alone truly belongs the highest praise. We're here to offer our praise to you, to thank you for all the things that you have done and are doing in our lives, and to simply worship you. We know you're here with us. We pray that you will reveal yourself to us and that we'll be able to hear you and see you and know you. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to take a moment, share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here in worship today. it's great to see you as we gather for worship today you'll notice in your bulletin there's an insert about uh, next weekend our missions uh, convention and we hope you'll be able to be a part of that there's a breakfast on saturday morning a brunch and there's a sign up in the back just so we know how many people to prepare for and it would help us with that so if you are interested you can sign up today if you haven't yet or you can also contact the church office we're going to be uh, you know concentrating a little bit more on uh, ministry to uh, more cl- uh, closer to us, uh, Native American ministries and Native ministries around uh, the, the country and uh, North America. And we're asking God to really touch our hearts about uh, the things that He's doing, not just around the world, but in our world as well. Uh, tonight, you'll uh, notice that Koinonia has a different start time. We're we'll meeting at 5.30 this evening. Just uh, be aware of that. And next Sunday morning, our worship schedule is eight twenty nine, forty, 40, and 11. I will be hosting a membership class uh, on Monday the 27th. If you're interested in that, you can contact me at the church office to make, sure we, uh, to make sure we have materials ready for you. We'd love to have you be a part of that. There are a number of prayer concerns, as always, in the bulletin. Uh, a couple of things I want to add. We heard yesterday that there was a, a Samaritan's Purse Bible College that was bombed in the Sudan, and we certainly want to pray uh, about that. And. There are things like that happening all over the world on a regular basis, unfortunately, and ask for God's protection and grace in the midst of the violence. And also, a former pastor in our district, Eldon Simon, uh, died uh, yesterday, and his funeral will be here at the church on Wednesday at 11 a.m. A visitation will be Tuesday at Copeland Funeral Home 2 to 4 and 7 to 9. That's for Eldon Simon, a former pastor. We are... uh, here today to uh, worship the Lord, and one of the ways in which we worship is uh, giving of uh, the resources out of the, which he has blessed us. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come and assist us, and children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. Ways in which we can pray to God: we can pray standing, sitting, kneeling, laying prostrate on the on the ground. And uh, if you would like to pray kneeling at the altar, I invite you to join me, or feel free to stay in your seats otherwise. Father, we come today to declare that you are the great God of the universe. You are the rock of ages. You are a creator, sustainer. And we worship you with all of our hearts. You've been good to us beyond what we could ever deserve. You've surrounded us with so much above all you've placed Hope in our hearts through Jesus Christ. Fathers, we recognize the truth of your nature. We also recognize the many times that in spite of your goodness, we have been selfish and thoughtless, rebellious. In this moment of silence, hear our prayer of repentance and whisper to us your words of forgiveness. Father, we pray not only for ourselves but we ask that in your mercy you will minister your grace in the homes and lives where there is sickness and pain and suffering and grief. We pray for your unbounded grace with those who struggle with problems at work or at home at school even in the church. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers of intercession. Bring healing and peace to all who are in need. Father, we pray for this world that you created. We're grieved by the events in so much of the world. Bloodshed, violence, struggle with sin that wreaks havoc in so many places and so many lives. We're burdened for the innocent and vulnerable of our world who are so often taken advantage of. We're burdened about those who, even in the 21st century, the millions of people that live in slavery, the millions of people that are trafficked every day. Father, we pray that you will bring peace to our world, that you will bring freedom to the captives. We pray, Father, for those who have been affected by this bombing at the Bible School in Sudan. We ask that out of this tragedy will come something new from your spirit, something miraculous. We pray that you will raise up your people to be a voice for calm and forgiveness, mercy and truth. And Father, for those places of the world where... They are nearing the boiling point. We pray for your divine intervention. Father, as your people living in this fallen and rebellious world, keep us from the seductions of the enemy. Let us be people whose light shines in the darkness and fill us with the hope and the power that's ours through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Saturate our minds with the promise of your eternal justice. So that even as we lament evil and the pain that it inflicts, we live in hope knowing that you're at work in this world. And the day is coming when all will be made right. In this moment of silence, speak deeply into our souls about our world and hear our prayers for our world. Father, open our eyes to see as you see. To hear as you hear. Open our minds to think as you think. And our arms to embrace as you embrace. Open our hearts to love as you love. And all for the sake of your glory. For the redemption of the world through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.
2: The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share with your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
3: Before the throne of God
0: above, I have a strong.
1: Father, we praise you today for what you've done for us in Christ. Give us hearts as we continue to worship you that are open to you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I've had a lot of people ask me in discussions over the last few months about, uh, you know, our impressions about what's going on in the world related to the weather changes. I mean, this is February 5th and there's no snow on the ground and I saw someone running yesterday with shorts on. Uh, This is not normal. It's It's not typical. And you think about the All the natural disasters that have happened over the course of the last few years, uprisings, wars, just all these things happening. And people are asking me, what do you think that's about? Do you you think maybe it's, it's a sign of the end, the last days? And of course, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I saw there was an article in Newsweek magazine a few months ago that was addressing this very same issue about what's going on in the world, and is this nearing the end? It's something that I, I think is on a lot of people's minds. What's interesting to me is that when we start talking about the last days, when we start thinking about the end times, the most, most predominant question that comes to our minds is when. When do we think this is going to happen? When do, we, when do we think that Jesus is going to return? When do we think the end will be? And, and you have, as we did last spring, uh, predictions. And people have been doing that through the centuries. Predictions about when the day will come. We're, we're very enamored with when. But we're not alone in that. That's been going on for a long, long time. You look back in the New Testament and, and you see the question being asked over and over again, when? When? The beginning of Matthew 24, the chapter before what we just read, Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple and more than likely this is the, the beginning part of the last week of Jesus' life. And they walk out, they're walking out of the temple and the disciples are, you know, staring at these huge stones of the temple and they're saying to Jesus, aren't these amazing? And, and Jesus says, the day is coming when there won't be a stone upon a stone. And the disciples' question is, When's this going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus proceeds to answer their question through the course of the 24th chapter by talking about that there will be wars and and there will be disasters and, and there will be persecution and people will fall away from the faith and all of these kinds of things that will be going on. But what I find is that Jesus' primary concern as he addresses this is really not to answer their question when because he doesn't really give them that answer. I think his predominant question is what? What are you going to look like when that day comes? Whenever that day arrives, what are you going to, are you going to be ready Are you going to be prepared? What is your life going to be like when you get to that point? And he says to the disciples, you don't know the day or the hour. No one knows when this is going to come, not even the sun. So you need to be ready. And you will be ready when you join those who stand firm in spite of everything going on around them. And the question that the disciples seem to be asking and the question that we are asking in that context is what does it mean to stand firm? What does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be prepared for that day whenever it comes? And a big part of Jesus' answer is what we've just read in this first half of chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus says to the disciples, you want to know How to prepare? You want to know how to be ready? Let me tell you a story. There were 10 virgins or 10 bridesmaids. And they were getting ready for a wedding. Now the weddings in first century Palestine are a bit different than our weddings. In in that day, the the bride and the the bridesmaids would all gather at at the bride's house. And and they would wait there. And most of the time, the, the weddings and the celebrations took place at night. But, but they would wait there at the bride's house until the groom and the groomsman came to get them. And when the groom came with his groomsman, they would then parade through the city, this great processional, ending up typically at the groom's house or someplace where the wedding and the big feast was going to take place. Now, the only way you could, the, the way that they, the indication that you were a part of the wedding party and you were supposed to be a part of this procession is to have your lamp. And it was a special kind of lamp. It wasn't just a little lantern. It was a special kind of lamp with a dome over it that identified you as part of the wedding party. And that you were part of the procession. Now, I get the feeling that, as you might expect, the groom likes to, always typically like to play a little bit of cat and mouse with the bride and the bridesmaids. How long can we make them wait? You know, trying to surprise them to come when they least expect it. And so it's not unusual at all for them to have to wait a long time. It wasn't, we're, we'll be there at seven. He's not late because he was late, like, you know, sometimes happens. But it, it's intentional. They don't know when he's going to come, and so they have to be ready. And so Jesus says you have these ten bridesmaids who show up at the bride's house, and he calls five of them wise and five of them foolish. The word for foolish in the Greek is moros. A form of that is moron. That's where we get that word from. You know, that's Jesus says. They're, they're morons. They're foolish. Why are they foolish? Because they don't bring enough oil. And they all fall asleep, you know, as you might imagine. There isn't, the problem isn't falling asleep. The problem is being ready when they wake up. And they wake up because they say, hey, the bridegroom is coming... And they trim their lamps, except for the other five say, uh-oh, we're running out of oil because we didn't bring enough. And they look at the other five and say, hey, give us some of your oil. And they say, forget it. You know, if we give you some of our oil, we won't have enough to finish the procession and we won't get into the wedding. Go find some. Now, I suspect as, you know, they, they, so they go off looking for oil and... And uh, by the time they get back, everybody the procession's finished, and and they're all in the wedding and celebrating. And it makes me wonder if they don't live in a place sort of like Houghton. You know, you don't just go down to the corner market in downtown and get some oil, right? It takes a little while to get to Walmart, or you know, the, even the Jubilee. You got to go, so you got to go ways. And when they get there, the door's locked, and the and the bride the bridegroom says, "I don't know you." You're not welcome. And the moral of the story is if you want to be rewarded by God, be sensible, be prudent, be cautious. But Jesus isn't done. So let me tell you another story. This is a story about a guy who was going on a journey. He has three servants. And he says to them, look, I'm going to be gone for a while. I'm going to entrust my possessions to you. And he gives to one guy five talents, another two, another one. We don't know exactly what a talent is. It it could be property. It could be money. Not exactly sure. If you read a variety of translations, you notice in the translation this morning talked about bags of gold. Maybe. Probably a talent is worth about 15 years wages. And someone estimated that in, in our money... The, the master probably gave these servants almost $2 million. This is a lot. And he, sa- and he says, I'll, I'll be back. And the first two servants take what they've been given and they invest it. We don't know exactly how they invested it, but it must have been somewhat of a high risk because they got high return. They doubled their money. And later on in the story, Jesus says, you know, you could have at least given it to bankers and got a little bit of interest out of it. So they didn't do that. They, they, maybe they started a business. Some people expect, or think that may be the case. They took the money. They started a business. You know how volatile business can be. They take a risk. They invest this stuff. And they could have lost all of it. And the third guy takes his money and he buries it in the ground, in the backyard. And They wait. And after a while, a long time, the master comes back, says, okay, guys, what do you got for me? And the first two come up and say, here's what we've got. He says, wow, awesome. Well done. I, I, I want you to, to be in a, in a relationship with me that's more than just a servant. And the third guy comes and he says, master, I knew you were a tough guy. I know you're demanding. So I didn't want to lose what you gave me. So I buried it in the ground. I haven't gained anything, but I didn't lose anything. Here it is. And the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. What is wrong with you? And he says, take him away to punishment. And the moral of this story is, if you want to be rewarded by God, take risks. Be reckless. Now, here's the paradox of these two stories. On the one hand, you have bridesmaids who play it safe and are rewarded, and another set of bridesmaids who play fast and loose with their oil and are punished. And in the other story, you have a servant who plays it safe and he's punished, and other servants who play fast and loose with the talents and they're rewarded. And you end up with another one of these paradoxes that we are confronted with continually in our lives about how we live our lives in preparation for the coming of Christ in this tension of caution and prudence versus taking risks and being reckless. I'm convinced that the underlying issue in these stories is their view of God. And for us, our view of God. Because our view of God is so instrumental in our relationship with God and how we see God and how we live out our lives as children of God. Before sin enters the world, Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God. They hear God perfectly. They see God perfectly. They understand God perfectly. But when sin enters the world... The receptors are damaged. They're skewed. They're twisted. And no longer do we hear God and see God the way we once did. There's nothing wrong with God. He hasn't changed his message. He hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't, he's not the problem. We are. And our sin and the sin that people do against us and living in this fallen sinful world creates warped and damaged receptors. And we end up with so many false images and false views of God. And, you, and, and this is why it's so important for us to, to understand who God is. And the passage that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was, was in the first chapter of John's gospel. Where he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And what I see underlying these two stories and the tension and the paradox of these two stories is a false image of God about him being full of grace and full of truth. In the first story, you have, you have bridesmaids who, who have a, a false view of the God of truth. They're apathetic toward the master. They're apath- and, and apathetic toward God is what he's trying to say. Because they don't really believe the God, the God of Truth is going to hold us accountable. You know, they don't really care about the bride or the groom. If they cared, they would have prepared. If the bride and groom meant anything to them, if they had any inclination at all that there was some bit of accountability, that the that the groom might actually say, "If you don't measure up, you're you're not going to get in." They would have brought the oil. But it's not important to them. They don't really care. And I wonder sometimes if that isn't an issue that we wrestle with the sense of prudence and sensibility and wisdom and caution about preparing, about remembering that God does hold us accountable because He's full of truth. I was trying to, as I was pondering about, you know, the the areas of our lives where caution and prudence are most necessary. I think it's about how we develop our hearts, how we develop our openness to God. I think it's about our willingness to invest ourselves in spiritual disciplines, engaging in the means of grace. If God is important to us, if developing our relationship with God is important to us, then what we do with our leisure time, with our discretionary time, will reveal that. We'll be careful to pray. We'll be careful to invest ourselves in in reading and understanding and meditating on the Scriptures. We'll be careful to be a part of the community of faith and to invest our lives in each other and to care about each other and to learn from each other and grow with each other. We will be careful about the spiritual disciplines and the means of grace. We'll be careful about about acts of mercy and kindness because all of these things develop our hearts To look like Christ and to be open to Christ so that we can hear him and see him and know him. The call to be cautious and prudent. The call to prepare is about what's going on in our lives and in our hearts and how we're developing our heart to look like Christ. So if we think about our lives and where we're spending our time, are we engaging in the spiritual disciplines In a way that reflects, if someone were to to look at us and and make a judgment about us, they would say Christ is important enough to them that they're giving time and energy and preparation to knowing him. But it's not just about developing a sense of, of godly prudence. It's also developing a sense of godly Risk taking, recklessness. And the servant in this story has this innate fear of God because he doesn't really believe that the God who says he's full of grace is going to respond to his risk taking with grace. I think he's afraid that if he takes a risk and he loses, God's not going to respond. The master's not going to respond in grace. He's going to put the hammer down on him. Can you relate to that at all? I can. There is this innate false view of God that we have to be afraid that he will not respond to us in grace. That when we take risks for him, they better work out right or we're in trouble. And so, what do we do? We don't take risks. It's intriguing to me that the first two servants don't seem to have that same problem. They don't seem to be afraid of the master. I mean, they take amazing risks, they risk everything the master's given them. Because I think they understand that even if when the master returns, they say to him, We got nothing. Because we took risks and it didn't work out. They believe the master's response is not going to be you wicked servants. It's going to be good for you for taking a risk. That's all I wanted. All I wanted is for you to take a risk. To do something with what I've given you. And I think we wrestle with that. I think we struggle with that because deep inside, we wrestle with an image of God that believes, no matter what we say, that maybe God isn't going to respond with as much grace to our risk-taking as he says he is. And our response to that is caution, fear. The truth of the matter is we are being asked to live in this tension. This tension of godly caution and, and of godly risk taking. And, and I think the risk taking that God's asking of us relates to generosity. Are we willing to trust him enough that, that we give more than we can afford because he's prompted us to do so? That's one of the reasons we've entered into this whole faith promise thing is because it's a means of giving us an outlet to say, I'm going to trust God that he's going to do more than than I could do myself. I think we need to to practice risk-taking in how we pray. Do we always pray with a safety net? Or do we get up on the wire and just go for it? And ask God for big things, for great things. For things that are outside of, of what we can imagine in our minds. Because we believe that God wants us to take risks. And we often are afraid to do that because the, the, I mean, the statement I've said myself and the statement I hear from other people is, but what if it doesn't work out? That's not our problem. That's God's problem. He's not calling us to answer the prayer, He's calling us to pray the prayer. He's calling us to be risk takers about how we express love to other people. That we become vulnerable and transparent with people. That we're willing to to give of ourselves and put ourselves out there even though we may get our heads chopped off. Even though it may mean that the result is pain. We love anyway. See, here's the bottom line of all this is that God's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. And nobody takes more risks than the master does. He takes everything he has and he gives it to these three servants. And when he comes back, he doesn't have any idea what they're going to hand him. We take risks because our God is the ultimate risk taker. He creates us with free will, knowing that we're probably going to reject him. He makes covenant with Israel, knowing that they're probably going to end up worshiping other gods. He sends Christ into this world to be the means of salvation, knowing that we're going to put him on a cross. No one takes risks more than God does and the God who takes risks is saying to every one of us follow my example it's because God is the great risk taker that I have a hard time believing in the doctrine of limited atonement there is a theology that says that Christ went to the cross and died only for the people who are going to respond positively to him And I understand why the people say that, because the death of Christ is so precious and and so valuable and so important. It couldn't be wasted. But that doesn't fit the character of the God that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. The God we read in the Scriptures is always vulnerable, always taking a risk, understanding that people may well reject Him and probably will reject Him, but it doesn't keep him from taking the risks. He's calling us to do the same. Now, there is this tension. There is this paradox. And there's, there's good caution and there's bad caution. And there's, there's good risks and there are bad risks. And we need to figure out the, what is right in both of those. I was in, I was in Wegmans a couple of weeks ago and walked to the back of the store and there was a woman there with samples. And when we, you know, we go to the store, I, I always look for the samples. I can we could try to time it at Sam's Club where you get the samples so you don't have to pay for lunch. Kind of cheap like that, but but um, you know this woman had samples of chips and salsa, and I walked up. Said, "Was like a sample?" And, of course, yes. He says, "What kind of salsa do you want? You want mild, medium, or hot?" And I said to her, um, "I'll take the medium." And she said to me, "Not much of a risk taker, huh?" <laughs> I took the hot. And I'm going to tell you, some risks you take are unwise. (laughs) You got to be careful. I was feeling that all day. And it's true. You know, sometimes you have to think about the risks and how they're going to affect your family. You have to think about the long term. But you know what my, my experience has been as I've lived my own life as I've talked to lots of people, is that our problem is typically not that we are too much risk takers. It's that we're too little. We're so enamored with being cautious and careful that we rarely ever take steps of faith. We ever, rarely ever really put our necks out for what Christ is calling us to be and to do. And the result is that we live so far below what God is asking of us. Because we don't invest our time in developing our hearts through the spiritual disciplines. And because we don't, we don't take risks the way God is calling us to, God has all these great plans for our lives and we so often settle for just a little bit of it. Now, I keep coming back to, to what the, the preacher of another generation, F.B. Meyer, said that one of the great disappointments in heaven, if there can be disappointments in heaven, is when we discover all the things that God wanted to do in our lives if we would have just let Him. And we hold back so much. E.W. Tozer said, talked about four propositions or proposals or ideas about living the blessed life with Christ. He said, you'll get nothing unless you go for it. He said, you'll get as much as you, as you insist on having. And you'll have as little as you're satisfied with. And the truth is, you have now as much of Christ as you really want. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 4 that watch out for those who want to deceive you. I think one of the great deceptions of the evil one is to cause us to think that comfortable is the place to which God calls us. That living in one extreme or the other is all we have to worry about. the truth is god's calling us to live in this tension of godly caution godly prudence and godly risk taking recklessness you might say i'm a little uncomfortable with the word reckless i'm using that intentionally because we are so typically side toward caution and how do we know how do we know that we're that we're really Doing what God wants us to do, that we're prepared in this way of living in the tension of both extremes, it'll come out in what we do, how we live. Because what we really want, what's really important to us, will always come out in our actions and where we put our time and our energy and our focus. The movie "Batman Begins" was released in 2005, and it's a, it's a story of how uh, Batman kind of came to be. It's a little bit hard for me to get used to this movie and the series of movies. You know I grew up in the '60s with a sort of cheesy um, Adam West television show, you know, the PoW and the Kaboom," and you know all of that. And this is a much darker perspective, but I, I've grown to like them. And there's a lot that's underneath these movies. Christian Bale plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And as he grows up, he grows up in great wealth. And Katie Holmes plays Rachel Dawes, who is one of his childhood friends. Bruce Wayne grows up and he goes off and spends years around the world doing all kinds of things and getting himself into all kinds of trouble. And eventually he comes back. And by this time... Rachel has become an assistant district attorney. The city of Gotham is just in chaos. It's it's being run by by crime lords, and and uh, the, basically the 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 law of the the land is under their thumb, and the city is just falling apart. And she's trying to stop it and do a kind of a one man crusade, but it's not making a lot of progress. And Bruce Wayne comes back and this idea of Batman starts to come into his mind and he's starting to figure out what to do, but he's also wrestling with what his life should look like. And he's still spending a considerable amount of time sort of in frivolity and just sort of flaunting his wealth. And one day he's at a hotel with a couple of women and, and you know he's out in eating and, and just you could tell that he's just wrestling with, with really letting go and really being serious about life. And on the way out of the hotel, he passes Rachel, then seen each other for years. And they talk for a moment and it's obvious to him that she's very disappointed with the decisions he's making. And he says to her, Rachel, all of this, all this, it's not really me. I am more. And she says, Bruce, you might still be that same great kid that you used to be. But it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. And I think there's something to be said for judging our preparedness by what we do. It's not what we talk about it's what we live it's where we spend our time and our energy as we think about this tension of godly caution and prudence and godly risk taking and recklessness as you think about your life what does how you're living say about your level of Preparedness. Heavenly Father, you know the struggles in our hearts to be cautious and prudent in the right way and yet to be people who take risks and are even reckless with our love, our prayers transparency our obedience to you Father give us grace to see our lives and give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're prompting us to do And we ask this through Christ. Amen.
2: Please stand and join us as we sing.
3: you're the one who walked on water and you calm the raging seas you command the highest mountains to fall upon